Look up idiot in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No! The definition of the word idiot, which you fucking are! Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to I Do Movies Badly, a podcast exploration of my cinematic ignorance. I am your host, Jim Rohner, and despite being an amateur film critic since 2006, I am woefully ignorant of many films, filmmakers, and genres that consensus has deemed important, and thus I have created this podcast to document my journey into cinematic edification. This month, I'm exploring the films of Abbas Kiarostami, as recommended by Benny Crown, and in this week's episode, I'll be talking about his 1990 film, Close up. And before I get into the episode, I wanted to reiterate the announcement that I made last week in that I am starting um, a new podcast. The introductory episode, the pilot episode, if you will, has been recorded, edited. It's just got to be published and put out probably um, by the time you're listening to this episode, maybe tomorrow, uh, maybe a couple days after that. But this week, my second podcast is launching, and that is The Cast of Cthulhu. Uh, it is going to be me and um, friend of the show uh, and frequent past guest James McCormick, who was on, of course, um, last October to talk about Dario Argento. He was on, I believe, the um, October before that, or at least the one before that, to talk about James Cronenberg. Uh, James Cronenberg? David Cronenberg, my apologies. But it's going to be him and I doing a bi-weekly podcast uh, talking about the adaptations, both cinematic and television, or at least at, at the start, just cinematic adaptations of um, late weird fiction author H.P. Lovecraft. So um, that is, once again, the cast of Cthulhu, and that if you are Google searching it or looking for it on iTunes or Pocket Cast or Stitcher or wherever your favorite podcast app is, remember that is uh, Cthulhu spelled C-T-H-U-L-H-U. Um, I am very excited about that. Um Castle Cthulhu premiering this week, maybe tomorrow, maybe the day after that, but it will be out. It will be bi-weekly. It is definitely going to be very exciting, so um, keep an eye out for that, and I will also, of course, um, post for it and link to it uh, on the Facebook page for I Do Movies Badly when that comes out as well, but... Um, and also, please listen to the very end of this episode. Um, if you're like me, then you don't always listen to the very end for the sign-off and that sort of thing. But please listen to the end of the discussion of this episode, um, even if you are already aware of all the streaming platforms on which you can find Close Up. Um, I will be announcing uh, the guest and theme for October, and I have been hinting at it. It is very big and exciting news. But I am going to be a tease and make you wait until the end um, because it is very exciting. And I, and I, I want to give you an incentive to listen to my uh, discussion on close-up, which I will, of course, get into uh, right now. And it was funny. I was texting Benny, the, the guest today, who, who's a, a very good friend of mine, and I uh, was telling him that the way that he or, or the, the order of which he recommended these titles to me was... Uh, reminding me of when I had a, depending on how how long you've been listening to this show, uh, this is a, a a deep cut, a callback. Um, it reminded me of the order of recommendations that Daniel Walberg gave me when he was talking about Pedro Almodovar, um, in the sense that his approach kind of seemed to be, let's start out by dipping our toe in the water. Basically, I'm going to kind of give you a little bit uh, of Almodovar or sort of him at his most refined and then uh, just so you can kind of get a taste of what he's of what he's used to what he's really capable of and then we're going to finish off with a final recommendation is going to be kind of pure unadulterated unfiltered 
Pedro Almodovar. And that's what I was really reminded of uh, when it when I when I started kind of taking notes and kind of uh, uh, watching close up and just kind of putting all of these these films in the context uh, of, of the recommendations. And I think Benny might kind of say that it was sort of a subconscious thing that he was doing, but basically the, how it seemed to me is he started out uh, with uh, Like Someone in Love, the last um, narrative feature film that he did. Um, he did one, uh, uh, one, I guess you could say, uh, a feature-length film in 2017 after Like Someone in Love. But his last kind of narrative feature, Like Someone in Love, was sort of um, this... A uh, master filmmaker who had been working for decades was kind of had really honed his craft. was uh, was very comfortable with what he was doing, why he was doing it, how he was doing it, and uh, you kind of saw the best of that. Uh, not just not just in terms of his techniques, but also how those techniques were able to be translated across cultures, across languages. I mean, just a, a filmmaker uh, who was working at the peak of his craft, basically. Um, and then we we got a certified copy, which was this. Um, a few years earlier, and certainly critically acclaimed as well, but just one that I was sort of, um, okay, I, I see kind of what you were, uh, a, a lot of what you would ultimately later, well, I mean, in 2010, he was no slouch. It wasn't as though that was his second or third movie, but it was basically a lot of the stuff that I had seen um, in Like Someone in Love, but also a little bit more experimental in um, how he was referencing things outside the frame in, in the sense of, um, real life and also how he was playing with um, this idea of what are you connecting to in film or not? What is the meaning of it? What are you taking away from it? And, and, and by crafting a story and telling it in, in, in a, a framing device in which it was, um, was this real or was this illusion? And he's not going to tell you. He's going to let you take something away from it. And now we, we kind of conclude this journey here with um, close-up, which is um, pure unfiltered, unadulterated Abbas Kiarostami. Um, everything that we would come to know uh, about Kiarostami or, or everything that I had kind of seen it come to perfect fruition in Like Someone in Love or in Certified Copy, but uh, but less focused, kind of more raw. And it, it's funny, I, I was actually kind of reminded, or not reminded, but um, what, what I kind of thought of or, or what it was reminiscent of, what this film was reminiscent of, was sort of, um, a a young filmmaker who had just kind of gotten a hold of, of his or her first camera um, was really experimenting with um, how to use the camera, experimenting with conventions of movie making and just kind of um, what can I do with this outside of the confines of what I might be used to um, to tell a story in, in an interesting and a different sort of way. Um, but like I said, I mean, everything that, that, I, that we have come to see or that we would later come to see in his career is there in this Kiarostami film. I mean, we, we have, um, once again, an opening scene kind of setting us up for this observational filmmaking style that he has. We have this, uh, this taxi ride in which it is a very simple camera setup in the sense of it's just shot, reverse shot in this conversation, but it just... It, uh, it just goes, and we just kind of follow these people. It, it, it just observes them in the world as it is and as they are, in the sense of this taxi driver stops and asks people for directions, and they often don't know the direction, so he just kind of keeps going, trying to find this house that he's looking for. Um, and then also, by the time they get to the location, um, instead of the camera kind of following the police officers into the house, the camera stays 
with the taxi driver. It stays with this character that brought us into this world. We don't know what's happening inside the house. We are just instead staying with this taxi driver, observing what he is doing, observing him as he observes the world, as he sees the 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 um the jet plane flying overhead, and as he's finding the flowers in this garbage pile, and as he's playing with this aerosol can and kicking it down the street, and as they you know it lingers a little bit too long for my taste in this aerosol can that rolls down the street, but it is this observational style. It is putting the camera somewhere and just observing the world as it unfolds, as it is basically. And then, of course, we have this the, this documentary kind of style during the, the court proceedings in which um, Sabzine is kind of giving his testimony and, and, and the family is kind of telling the judge um, what, you know, what they saw transpire. And it just and it is the camera just sitting there, long, unbroken takes of sometimes the judge off camera, sometimes it's Kiarostami off camera being an active participant in this observation. But just we are in close up, as the title would suggest, just kind of seeing these people be themselves. Um, and then, of course, at the very end, you almost kind of have a... When when um, Makhmalbat uh, finally meets this this guy who was impersonating him, um, there's almost a voyeuristic style in which uh, the, the, the quote-unquote documentary crew, if you will, is kind of observing them meeting for the first time and then following them on the motorcycle trip to... Um, the house of the, of the family that, that was originally pressing the charges, we do have on many layers this observational style in three different forms. It's really quite fascinating. Um, and it's just kind of all, I don't want to say they're all thrown together because that implies that it's messy, but it is just all these different observational styles of filmmaking. You have documentary, you have objectivity, and then you have this, uh, this almost pseudo-fake uh, documentary, mockumentary style, and they're all thrown together into this story that is telling this, or retelling maybe, this really weird, uh, based on a real story tale. And if you're not familiar with this, I mean, it is uh, basically what we're seeing is exactly what happened in real life, in that there was a guy going around uh, Iran, impersonating this this uh, this real filmmaker, uh, Makhmalbat, and then a journalist did discover it, uh, you know, kind of heard about it, and then uh, th- the man was arrested, and then the, the story was written, and then as the proceedings were unfolding, as the legal and court proceedings were unfolding, Kiarostami was made aware of the story and decided to kind of get involved and sort of make a film out of it. So what we actually see is, in a way, re-dramatizations of what was happening um, and even not entirely, although they appear objective documentary evidence, it's still not entirely a documentary. There is some deception here, um, but it's not it's not malevolent. I, I mean, Kiarostami, from the beginning, from the be- beginning of these films, it has been dealing with deception in the sense of, um, you know, in Like Someone in Love, the characters appearing to be other characters than than who they actually are or in certified copy this idea of like who who is this couple are they actually um you know an unhappily married couple that was uh just kind of playing at something else or were they something else and they were playing at this idea of an unhappily married couple deception has been a part of kirastami from the very beginning of this podcast basically um but but in, in in a way of sort of like uh, that that only cinema could do in in a way that only um, you could do as a director telling a story with with a with a camera and with actors and with editing and with just this admission that by telling a a story of a film you are lying to a certain degree you are 
telling a fiction. It doesn't matter if it is a scripted fiction or if it is a documentary fiction, but the techniques of where you place the camera and who is on camera and when you're cutting, these are all in a way tools of fiction or at least tools of manipulation or illusion. I mean, certified copy, uh, it was a fiction story, but even just um, what you're seeing is is a is a copy of what really happened. You are you're, you're seeing a a real conversation between two people, but those two people were playing other people, and there were many takes, and then there were edits, and there were things, and, and you're seeing an illusion basically. That's been Kiristami's thing from the very beginning, um, and I can understand now why kind of reading about him and seeing this kind of stuff and how why he has this this reputation as this revered filmmaker. Um, I want to uh, I want to quote as I as I normally do. Um, well, I, I'm skipping over a few notes here, but I, so I want to get back to this idea of of this film kind of seeing seeming like it was a, a like one of the first films of a young filmmaker, which um, is sort of figuratively or maybe spiritually true. I mean, by the you know this was only his uh, Kiarostami's second feature film. Um, and, uh, and, and yet when he was making it, he was, uh, I think, well into his, uh, forties when he was, I mean, he had had another career before he was a photographer, he was a middle-class guy. Um, and yet this was only his second feature film. He had done some shorts, he had done some documentary work, and yet this was the, one of the first times that he was really kind of getting to use all those tools that would eventually become, um, par for the course in, in his tool belt, basically to tell this story, um, and he was telling it free from many of the confines of Iranian censorship. And I admit that I don't know really anything about kind of Iranian censorship or um, what filmmaking was like before the Iranian Revolution. That that side of or part of history has been uh, I am largely ignorant of. And yet, um, but I do know that that in order to kind of get around Iranian censorship, they were um, filmmakers kind of had to tell a lot of stories through sort of a a emotionally softer uh, way focusing on child protagonist to kind of get around um, any any negative perceptions that could be seen um, from uh, from the outside world um, and so here he is making this movie one of you know at early stages of, of, of after this Iranian censorship and he is using all the tools at his disposal you know that to, to kind of tell the story and at one point I know film comment magazine had called close-up uh, the best Iranian film ever made. And so that leads me into quoting, once again, Godfrey Cheshire's uh, Criterion essay. He, he had the one uh, that I quoted for Certified Copy, which I posted on the I Do Movies Badly Facebook page. I will do the same for this one. But um, all this kind of leads me to, to this quote from it in which he says, that last superlative, the calling close of the best Iranian film ever made, that last superlative seemed, seems destined to endure, given close-up status as the film that redefined Iranian cinema, shifting it from the lyrically compassionate, often child-censored work, as I just badly tried to explain my way through, that began emerging after the government-sponsored revival of the country's cinema in 1983, including Amir Nadari's The Runner, Baram ba- uh, Bezai's Bashu, The Little Stranger, and Kiarostami's own Where's the Friend's House, to something much more complex. Close-up seemed to combine the social concern of Italian neorealism, to which the new Iranian films were often compared, with the French New Wave's cerebral self-expression and formal idiosyncrasy, and to express the whole into the vitalizing context of a post-revolutionary Islamic culture. The film's key innovations, the unorthodox mix of documentary and fiction, the self-reflexive musing on cinema and its impacts, the simultaneous exultation and questioning of the auteur, 
may have had certain precedents in both world cinema and Iranian culture, but close-up fused them in a wholly new and original way. So, in a way, it is, a, a, like I said, that idea of a young filmmaker kind of making his or her, or one of his or her first films and using as many techniques as they possibly can that they've learned about to kind of tell the story, but doing it in a way which is groundbreaking and life-changing. I mean, you think of um, uh, America's kind of new Hollywood wave in the 1970s with Scorsese and Coppola and Steven Spielberg and um, Brian De Palma and Hal Ashby and all those filmmakers who were making these um, interesting, intriguing kind of new films. A lot of them were some of the first films that these people had ever made, and yet they were doing it in a way in which they were exposed to other film cultures, the Italian New Realists, the, the, the French New Wave, um, and were kind of responding to the culture that had come before them. You have Kiristami doing just that, in which um, this guy is responding to the culture that came before him, the, the artistic expression, or I should say the lack thereof, or the censorship of the artistic expression, uh, artistic expression coming before him, and just using all these different filmmaking techniques to tell a story in a new and interesting way that would eventually become influential and groundbreaking. Um, and... Um, it's interesting because um, the you see, as what so flustered me in Certified Copy, this idea of the, the question of the blurring of reality and illusion without an explanation or a context. I mean, what we have is stuff which does appear to be documentary, but then we also have stuff which is clearly fictional redramatizations because we have different angles, we have different blocking, we have different staging, we have editing, we have the camera kind of moving around and taking different POV. So we know that these are clearly staged, and yet there's no explanation as to why these scenes are, are filmed in such a way and, and the other ones are are filmed in a different way. I mean, and, and even aesthetically, the courtroom scenes are clearly filmed in super in a, in 16 millimeter, whereas the outside redramatizations, if you will, are 35 millimeter. Why is that the case? Why are these intermixed with each other? When does he choose to go between the courtroom drama to the or the the real courtroom unfolding and the redramatizations? There is no explanation for it. It's just the fact that it is should be enough. You provide the meaning. This was something that flustered me so much in Certified Copy, but I think it was because Certified Copy started out as one way and then changed uh, at the drop of a hat partway through, and there was no explanation. Whereas this one, I was a bit more on board because it was just kind of, it was that from the very beginning, basically, and just kind of committed to it across the board. It's sort of like um, last year at Marion Bad is one of the only... Um, really far out there French New Wave films that I'm really into because it leans so hard into how fucking weird it is. It's just that way from the beginning and it's just that way until the end and then that's all it is. I don't want to say that's all, but that's what it is from beginning to end and it commits to that and I kind of really love and appreciate that. Um, and in this one you kind of have that, but then you also have this other element of, of this this a larger social commentary further reflecting kind of the meta-narrative of the film because what is is at play here of this young, poor filmmaker who wanted to pretend to be this this well-renowned filmmaker because of how it made him feel like he was more than he was worth. Um, made him feel like he could be something more than just the poor kid who, who could never amount to anything. But by pretending to be this filmmaker, it almost sort of like, it felt to him like he was that filmmaker. And he was getting validation from the people that he was rehearsing with, these you know, these people that believed they were going to be in his, in his next film. It, it was this level of, or, or this idea of transcending 
your social class or transcending your reality, which is something that we can all, I think, relate to as just film goers, as film viewers, basically, kind of whether you want to call it suspension of disbelief or whether you want to call it um, escapism or turning your brain off, but just you sit down for an hour and a half or two hours or two and a half hours and you just kind of agree, like, I'm going to step outside of where I am now to be in this film and to be in this world. And that's really um, what this guy is kind of uh, on the surface really expressing of just this idea of cinema even though it was fake, even though this whole thing I was doing was an illusion, this idea of it allowed me to step outside who I was, where I am, and I received validation from it from these outside people, from these people who were involved in this relationship. It's almost kind of like this idea of a filmmaker kind of saying, like, I made this movie and you, the audience, and you, the viewer, validated me on this illusion by telling me it was worthwhile, by being entertained and enjoying it. And it, it was really quite fascinating. Um, and I, I really, really appreciated this. Um, and, and even now, the more that I'm kind of talking it and, and saying out, out loud, I'm, I'm appreciating it more than, than I did when I was watching it last night. But even having said that, I have to admit, this is a film that I appreciate a lot more than I enjoy. Um, I, I, I texted Benny, I don't know if I mentioned this in the last episode, but I was texting Benny during watching Certified Copy and just kind of saying like, oh, okay, so so Kiarostami is a filmmaker that makes films for people who analyze films. Um, he really is this guy which is so kind of aware of his craft, and I, and I don't say that in a bad way, um, but sort of so aware of what he's doing and why he's doing it, that it's sort of like he can't step outside of that. He doesn't seem like he's the guy that could make mainstream uh, mass appeal. I mean, I mean, what would Kiarostami's Marvel film look like? It, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't look like anything. It wouldn't be. He wouldn't be the kind of guy that would do that because of what he believes cinema should do and what it could do. Um, and I, I was... Um, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by that. I, I, I appreciate the hell out of that. I, I, I can really certainly enjoy the Marvel Cinematic Universe and get really into it and be really entertaining. There are certain movies that I love and rewatch over and over again, and I can appreciate the ones that do something outside of that. But that doesn't mean that I find it riveting or even necessarily compelling. Um, I, and once again, I respect that he, he's a guy in a, in a, in, that was raised in a country and a culture in which he did not come to experience cinema in the same way that I did, you know? Um, Benny and I talked about this a little bit off mic and, and it didn't really kind of make it into the introductory episode, but this guy who is, who is coming at filmmaking from basically kind of fresh eyes or at least a different perspective than we're used to, we kind of have expectations as... Um, and I'm, I'm talking about an American audience now, so if you are um, not an American listener, then I certainly apologize for these um, presumptions that may not necessarily apply to you. But this idea of this is what a, a Hollywood movie looks like. This is what a film is supposed to look like. And if you are raised in a country and a culture in which you are not exposed to that, in which you don't have that experience, then what does cinema become for you? When you learn about filmmaking, when you learn about what a camera can do, what it can capture, and how it can capture, and how you can manipulate those things, what does cinema, what does a movie become for you? And so I am, as I said, certainly fascinated and really appreciate that here's a guy who is making these movies in this kind of way because of what it means to him and what you, you take away from it as an audience. But it's not a movie that I necessarily want to watch again. It's not a, a movie that I'm necessarily going to recommend again outside of kind of a, a, a context of if I'm in a, a film school or teaching people and just kind of saying like, 
this is what you're used to as a movie, but here are ways that you can also do it. Here are other forms of expression which are equally as valid as these other ones, if not more so because of um, how it comes from a, a, a sort of less jaded and, and less cynical um, perspective. But that is also maybe perhaps me being um, presumptuous. But yeah, uh, a, a, uh, a, a film that I am really respect, that I really appreciate that it, that it exists... Um, not one that I will probably ever revisit again, but at least it's just kind of good to know that this exists outside of everything that I might be used to, that it inspired other things outside of what I'm used to, and that it, it, it can inspire and influence other things and other filmmakers in the future. Um, maybe someone else, uh, um, whether it's in Iran or any other country or culture which is not exposed to mainstream cinema, maybe could be exposed to something like Abbas Kiarostami and just kind of think, cool, this is what cinema means to me, this is how I'm going to use and utilize this art, which is a really cool thought, to be honest with you. But um, if you are um, curious to rewatch or watch again for the first time, um, it is free to stream if you have the Criterion channel or uh, Canopy, um, and it is otherwise uh, uh, available to rent and or purchase on iTunes. Not readily available if you do not have one of those uh, aforementioned streaming services, but uh, if you can get your hands on it, it is an interesting watch just to kind of see that it exists. So that does it for Abbas Kiarostami. That does it for September and I guess a little bit of October. My apologies for the, the weird scheduling snafu, but um, which means that of course October is coming up or <laughs> depending on when you're listening to this is already here, which means a new guest, new films, and a new theme. So this is what I'm super excited about. I have recorded the pilot a couple weeks ago and I've been trying uh, not to, to, to spill it to anyone uh, who will possibly give me the, the, uh, the time of day, but um, have you seen the movie Stakeland? Have you seen uh, We Are What We Are? Um, have you seen, as of this, um, the latest film In the Shadow of the Moon on Netflix? If you have, and if you've liked them, then I think you're going to be really pleased because my guest for October is writer-director Jim Mickle, a guy that I have... Uh, known for a long time, have been trying to get on this podcast for a very long time, and I'm so pumped that it finally worked out. Um, he will be my guest for October, and he uh, is um, going to be recommending to me some films of uh, South Korean filmmaker uh, Bong Joon-ho. It was a great conversation. He's a super nice guy. He's a super enthusiastic guy, and um, if you haven't been able to check out those movies I just watched, Stakeland or We Are What We Are um, or In the Shadow of the Moon, or even uh, the first feature film he ever did, Mulberry Street, which is a, a cool little independent horror film. They are all available for free. All of them, with the exception of In the Shadow of the Moon, are free to stream on Amazon Prime. Uh, In the Shadow of the Moon is, of course, a Netflix exclusive. has got a lot of buzz. I must admit that as of this recording, I have not yet watched it, but it played at Fantastic Fest. There's a lot of good buzz, um, so I'm really excited to watch it. And I'm really excited to, to finally post and get this episode out there because... Um, he's by far not only the most high-profile guest, but he's also just a great guy to listen to, to talk to. And so my guest for October will be writer-director Jim Mickle. He'll be recommending me some films of South Korean filmmaker Bong Joon-ho. So be sure to tune in next week for that, where I will be talking to Jim Mickle, and where hopefully I will be just a little bit less ignorant.
This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.